Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomza from La Trobe University. Today, we are talking about freedom of expression in Indonesia and the growing trend towards restricting this quintessential human right. Ironically, this worrying trend has occurred under President Joko Widodo, or Jokowi, who many had expected to improve rather than erode the status of human rights in Indonesia when he was first elected in 2014. During his first term in office, however, Jokowi not only used existing laws to restrict freedom of expression, he even created new legal tools to suppress opposition against his presidency. Most recently, the blocking of video and image sharing on social media after the election protests this year and the internet shutdown in Papua indicated a new dimension of restrictions on freedom of expression. Today, we are trying to explain the reasons behind this part of Indonesia's deepening illiberal turn. Joining me in the studio here in Melbourne is Dr. Kensit Yawan, a lecturer in Asian and Indonesian Studies at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and, of course, a former host of the Talking Indonesia podcast. Ken, welcome back to Talking Indonesia. Thanks, Dirk, for having me back. Yes, let's talk about freedom of expression. So, recent analysis of Indonesian politics more broadly um, has touched upon freedom of expression quite frequently in the context of what observers have been describing as increasing illiberalism, an illiberal turn, the term illiberalism generally is coming up quite often, and most recently there was a big conference, of course, at the Australian National University in Canberra, where you were one of the presenters, and where that term also was discussed quite often. So to kickstart our discussion today, can you briefly explain to our listeners what exactly the term illiberal democracy means, and do you agree that Indonesia is now an illiberal democracy? Well, if we start thinking about the concept of an illiberal democracy, of course, the first point of reference would be what a democracy actually is. Um, if we think of a democracy as a system where we have free and fair elections, I think we can all agree that that works in Indonesia quite well. If we just look at the recent elections, Indonesia has an electoral democracy. However, when we start talking more about the quality of democracy, this is where the concept of illiberalism comes into play. So, for instance, as I just said, Indonesia has an electoral democracy, a system where the population can choose its, its leaders. However, there are a lot of issues with the limitations of civil, civil liberties and freedoms. So this is then what we can call an illiberal democracy, so a system where we see free and fair elections, but we also see regular infringements of basic freedoms and rights, and basically an absence of the rule of law, or more accurately, where the law or the justice system does not provide adequate protections for those whose rights are being violated. But the country's legal framework does provide for protection of political rights and civil liberties, doesn't it? Isn't it even written in the constitution? Absolutely. Look, if we look at Indonesia's legal framework, if we look at um, its human rights framework, then we can see ab absolutely, as you said, there are constitutional guarantees for human rights. So 
The Indonesian constitution has a separate chapter on human rights and um, human rights that are included in that include um, the freedom to express opinion, the right to access information, so all those rights that we commonly associate with the freedom of expression. And that chapter was actually modelled on international human rights provisions. Then there's other national legislation, so you can think of the 1999 human rights law that has provisions around freedom of expression. Also more specific laws such as the press law has guarantees for the freedom of expression. There is even a specific law on the freedom of expression. And Indonesia has also ratified various international conventions that guarantee these rights, including the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So from a legal framework perspective, if we just look at the letter of the law, things are actually looking quite good. And the constitutional amendments that incorporated those kind of protections, that was at the very beginning of the democratization period, of course. Uh, some of the other laws that you mentioned then came a bit later, but obviously the problem is as often in Indonesia and elsewhere is with enforcement and implementation, right? So when did these problems start to become more serious? When did we start to see that actual law enforcement for political rights and civil liberty is really problematic? And when did we start to see what observers are now describing as this trend towards illiberalism? If we think about current observations on Indonesian politics, a lot of people will refer to increased use of the law and information and electronic transactions uh, or the ITE law. Many have correctly noted a spike of the use of this law in the lead up to the elections. So there's one indication, of course. But I think if we start looking back, and I think this is why a historical perspective is actually really useful and interesting, I think we can find factors that actually undermine the freedom of expression already popping up earlier. So we just talked about all the legal reforms that were favorable in terms of human rights. But at the same time, we can also see that in laws also human rights provisions were basically negated by saying, well, there are human rights, but you need to consider responsibilities. And there were references to the Indonesian state ideology, all these kind of provisions that can make it easier to circumvent the application of fundamental rights and freedoms. If we look at previous presidencies, under Megawati, we saw, for instance, that increasingly editors of journals uh, and other media outlets were brought to court for defamation. Under the presidency of Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, there was an increase of violent attacks against journalists, and there was also increasing use of lawsuits against journalists. So I think there was a notable trend already much earlier than the recent limitations of freedom of expression that we might have seen in the last four or five years. Much of the debate now revolves around the government actually actively restricting uh, freedoms, freedom of expression and other freedoms. But Indonesia also has a history due to poor law enforcement that other society actors often take the law into their own hands and in doing so restrict civil liberties and political rights of other groups, especially minority groups. So how do these two processes relate to each other? 
Yes, well, if I can just use an example, and that would be the example of academic freedom, I think that in that categories, we see both the role of state organizations as well as what we can call illiberal societal groups. So, for instance, particularly between 2015 and 2016, there was a spike in the amount of academic discussions that were cancelled, either um, due to government authorities not giving their necessary permissions and often that happened in response to demands of radical Islamist groups in society. Most of these discussions related to the 1965 violence and more generally leftist history in Indonesia. There was one example of a festival in Jakarta which was denied permission by the police, but then the police gave permission to the radical Islamist organizations to stage a demonstration against this particular festival. So we see that on one hand, yes, we can identify cases where state organizations limit the freedom of expression in excessive ways. And we can see that there are societal groups involved, but often it's an interplay between these two groups. And this makes it very difficult for minorities, whether we talk about political minorities, but also religious minorities and sexual minorities as well, to continue these events, because they're basically out on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, you've touched upon religious and sexual minorities. Can you give us some other examples of what groups are particularly vulnerable? Well, if we think about religious minorities, we can think, for instance, of increased use of the blasphemy law against religious minorities. The case that will probably spring into everyone's mind is, of course, Ahok. However, it's really important to remember that the blasphemy law is not just being used against people with a strong public and political profile, such as Ahok or Basuki Cahaya Purnama, but also ordinary Indonesians. So you can think of the case of Meliana, a Buddhist woman of ethnic Chinese background, who had raised questions about the volume of the local mosque. This was not received well by the local community, And Islamist groups there started actively lobbying for her to be charged under the blasphemy law. Here we can see in the case of Meliana, there's a double minority there, a religious minority as well as an ethnic minority. If you can think of the application of the ITE law that I mentioned earlier, then we can see that this law is increasingly being used against critics of the Jokowi government or critics of powerful interest groups, including businesses. So we have seen journalists being charged under this law who had been critical about the business practices of large conglomerates, for instance. So going back to your question, who can be targeted? Many people can be targeted as long as you're, you know, if you're considered too critical or because you are part of a religious minority an ethnic minority, uh, and so on. Well, most recently, freedom of expression was in the spotlight again, of course, during the mass protests in Papua that followed the racist insults hurled at Papuan students in Surabaya. And the government seemed to take quite extraordinary measures there in order to prevent information coming out of Papua and 
it intimidated people who were speaking out in defense of the Papuans there. So why this particularly heavy-handed approach in Papua? Does it have to do with the special status of Papua? Was it the particular dynamics that unfolded in response there? Or is it just another example in a line of increasing yeah, intimidation of critics? I think there are a few particularities, um, and like you said, one of them, it, it is about the special status of Papua within Indonesia and, of course, how that is being contested. Conflict in Papua and over Papua and the position of Papua in Indonesia, that has been consistent in modern Indonesian political history. There's nothing new about that, and in that sense, the heavy-handed approach of the government is also nothing new. What is new is that I think there's a number of particular dynamics of the recent events in Papua. One of them is, is that the protests were not just located in Papua itself. They were actually on other in other parts of Indonesia as well. So there was that spillover effect, and I think that played a very important role. Then there's also the issue of racism and how Papuan students were subjected to racism and that really means that it's not just a particular group of Papuans, for instance, those that are lobbying for independence that are being targeted, but it's all Papuans. And I think that actually also is a specific dynamic of what has occurred in recent times. But when it comes down to cracking down on dissent from Papua, that in itself is not new. What did the government use to justify its measures there? I mean, shutting down the internet is quite an extreme measure. How did the government justify taking this particular measure? Was it just to suppress the spread of images out of Papua or was there a bit more to it? Well, if you look at the government narratives that are used around the blocking of internet services or blocking of images, it's actually the one argument or the one narrative that consistently appears is that of national interests and national security. That this is something simply that the government does to protect its citizens for uh, the spreading of fake news, which might incite further violence. And in that sense, it's a similar narrative as that what was used after the shutdown of um, social media following the announcement of the presidential election result. The consistent message here, this is in the interest of the nation. And once things have returned to normal, then the restrictions will be lifted again. All right. Well, the government has its narrative national security, national interest, communal harmony, etc. What's your explanation? Why do you think we have seen this trajectory that the government has actually gone down this path? Why has it taken an increasingly assertive stance towards critics, especially under President Jacobi, whom many, when he became president, thought would actually promote a stronger protection of human rights? Well, there's a number of things to consider here. First of all, and I already touched upon this earlier, is I think we need to very critically look at the trajectory of democratic reform that Indonesia has experienced in the last 20 years. If we look at that from a human rights lens, yes, we can see a lot of improvements in terms of the legal guarantees of human rights, but we can also see that from the start, these freedoms were actually being contested. So there's one, I think, an institutional weakness there. 
Then we need to think about other elements, such as that we still see lots of remnants of the authoritarian regime in the current Indonesian political landscape. Uh, Jokowi is surrounded by many conservatives, and part of that was that when he was elected, he just didn't have that much power. So he needed to build alliances with other forces, and he did so successfully. However, those other forces are not necessarily friendly towards the human rights agenda. One example, probably a very uh, extreme example, is that of Wiranto, who has been indicted of human rights violations. So with those kind of people in his environment, it makes it difficult to push for liberal changes, even if the intention is there. Then, of course, there is the figure of Jokowi himself. Everyone knows very well that he's particularly interested in economic objectives and developmentalist goals and not so much in civil and political freedoms. And then there's also the issue of Indonesian society as a whole. Uh, the reality is, is that the Indonesian electorate is quite conservative, socially conservative in terms of, of its norms. And if you look at, for instance, results from big surveys such as Asian Barometer, we can see that Indonesians very much support democracy where this is defined as you know having free and fair elections. However, support for civil rights such as the right to demonstrate and the right to organize, the support for those kind of norms is far less. So Therefore, I don't think you can pinpoint it to just one one factor. So how do you explain the reaction from the human rights movement or human rights activists to this trend? Why has it not been more effective? Why have they been unable to mobilize more opposition against what the government is doing? You already said the Indonesian electorate is generally quite conservative, but in the past it seemed as if those human rights groups have sort of punched above their weight in a sense and have actually had a fair bit of influence. But that seems to have decreased. I think the Indonesian human rights movement is still very vocal, but it is a minority group. It's a small group. One of the issues is that it does not seem to be able to really change broad societal perceptions. Part of that maybe has also to do with the inherent limitations of the human rights movement. If we think, for instance, again, you know, using a historical perspective, many of the human rights reforms that were introduced in the years after 1998 were in response to very strong calls from Indonesian human rights groups. That is an achievement of the movement in general. However, I think one of the limitations of the human rights movement, and I think you know, even using the term the human rights movement is really problematic because we can't really speak of a coherent human rights movement. There's many organizations and many groups that all have different focus areas and interests. Um, that in itself, there's, that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. However, it has not been able to consolidate itself and have a real impact on either policy or societal perceptions. And then that not having that impact on societal perceptions then also means that there's limited change in, in electoral results when it comes to this. That doesn't even take into account is that, you know, are there real political options here that would be fully supportive of this, you know, this liberal democratic idea of civil and political freedoms? Um, so... 
One of the issues is that the Indonesian human rights movement, and I use this term for want of a better word, is fragmented. One example in which we have seen the fragmentation of the Indonesian human rights movement under Jokowi's first term was the July 2017 decree on mass organizations, which banned the Hizbut Tahrir, uh, a transnational Islamist organization. Now, the way in which this decree was formulated, it basically allows for the banning of any organization that is considered not to be in line with Indonesian state ideology or Pancasila. If you think about that, the decree could actually be used against any organization, potentially also human rights organizations. Mm -hmm. However, many Indonesian human rights activists supported the ban because mm -hmm. they see Islamists as a threat to their liberal agenda, which of course is correct too. The different opinions about this ban on the HTI really shows that the human rights movement here is not coherent. And that of course is a problem when you then have to start lobbying for, or if you want to start lobbying for, for certain changes. Yeah, well, one example where the movement, if we use the term for want of a better one, where the movement appeared quite coherent or had a cause behind which they could rally was the recent debate about revising Indonesia's criminal code. And until basically a few days before this was meant to be passed, it looked as if once again the human rights activists are not being heard. It seemed as if the government and parliament were set to pass the revisions to the criminal code in the face of very vocal opposition against it from activists, from the media and from the international community because it um, contained some provisions that were very regressive and were very restrictive on political rights and civil liberties. But then at the very last minute, Jokowi did seem to have a change of heart and asked Parliament to postpone the passing of this and maybe go back to the drawing board. What happened there? How do you explain that Jokowi did change his mind? First of all, I think it's really important to remember that revisions of the criminal code in Indonesia have been debated over and over again, but it's also high time for the criminal code to be revised because Indonesia is basically still working with a criminal code from the colonial era. So it is time. Many presidents have said that they would do it, um, and it appeared that under Jokowi now it would be likely to happen. Now, maybe just for listeners, it might be interesting to think about some of the provisions that were mentioned in the draft criminal code that impact on the freedom of expression. They include, for instance, an expansion of the blasphemy law, which might be very problematic for religious minorities. There's also the criminalizing of insults against the president and vice president, as well as provisions that might be problematic for sexual minorities, for instance, spreading of information on contraception. So, as you said, from a civil rights perspective, there were actually a lot of concerns and indeed the many societal actors in Indonesia started opposing that very vocally. So why the last-minute backflip from Jokowi? In public statements, Jokowi has said that he has responded to public concerns. And I think here it's really important to remember that while we have identified many conservative traits of the Jokowi presidency, in Indonesia he still represents the plural Indonesia in response to rising conservatism and especially also the candidacy of Prabowo Subianto. So in that sense, 
Jokowi is kind of walking that tightrope and that increased polarization that we see in Indonesia now between more plural groups and more conservative groups. And perceptions do matter. So I think Jokowi here is actually trying to send out a message that he is looking after the concerns of this particular group who, of course, have backed him during the last elections and also in 2014. Uh, so what will happen is an, is another question, but I think that Jokowi is very much aware of how he's perceived by these groups and it might be a legacy issue as well. How does he want to be remembered as a president? So um, more yeah. questions than answers, really. One reason why so many questions came up was because it came only a few days after of course, the law um, regulating the, the work of the Anti-Corruption Commission was passed, and that already caused a massive outcry. So you said it might be a legacy issue that he intervened this time. Others have suggested maybe he buckled on international pressure. But if we're thinking about legacy, he is only just about to start his second term. So he's got five years to go, and of course, he's now announced big legacy projects, such as moving the capital. But... If we stick to that particular issue that we talked about today, human rights, political freedom, civil liberties, how do you see this second term unfold? If we think about Jokowi asking for a delay in the revisions on the criminal code, it's really important to recognize that he just asked for it to you know, be hauled off. He has not said that uh, they shouldn't go ahead altogether. So that's one thing. I think when we look at Jokowi's human rights record, we need to think about what actually happened in his first term. The reality is that under his first term, we have seen increasing pressures on the freedom of expression of minority groups, whether these are religious minorities or political minorities, ethnic minorities, as well as sexual minorities. That is a fact. The other issue is that at the start of his first term, there was an expectation that he would address past human rights abuses. That did not eventuate. So that's another fact. Taking together, I think under Jokowi's first term, we can see a lot of issues or problems in the implementation of civil and political rights. So that doesn't really promise much for his second term. The other thing is that, of course, you know, you need to look at human rights also more holistically. We've talked about civil and political rights, not so much about economic and social rights. I have mentioned that Jokowi favors developmental projects, economic projects, and of course, you know, these can have very real implications for people's social and economic rights and their well-being. So in that sense, you know, there there might be room for progress. So if the question is, am I an optimist in terms of civil and political rights? I think the track record doesn't give us many reasons to be very optimistic in the area of civil and political rights. However, we also just need to remember that even though there are many challenges for Indonesian human rights activists and the movement in general, is that it remains a very vocal and creative group that will maintain pressure on the Jokowi government. Whether he will respond to that is another issue. All right. Okay, thanks very much for these insights, Ken. That was Ken Sityawan from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please join us again for the next one on the 17th of October. 
Finally, as ever, don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and till next time.